This just in, breaking news is breaking out everywhere. Breaking news, though. Breaking news. Breaking news. Breaking news. We interrupt this program. This is a national emergency. Important instructions will follow. Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin. Carmen Maria Machado says it's a modern horror masterpiece. Timely and necessary. This is extreme horror that says something. Listen to it, says Gabino Iglesias. Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin. Out February 22nd, 2022. Manhunt. 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 <laughs> The story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming of age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Creepy Crate is a horror and true crime subscription box filled with spooky collectibles, macabre accessories, and terrifying goodies. Each bi-monthly box is filled with over $85 worth of terror and includes at least one horror or true crime book. Delivers dread to your doorstep for just $39.99 with free shipping. Be on the lookout. The next box will have our dead headspace bookmarks in them. For more information, for those interested in checking this out, all you have to do is go to creepycrate.store. And just for our listeners, we have a limited time discount code. That's all you got to do is type in DEAD5, D-E-A-D, and the number 5, no spaces. That will net you $5 off your box. Creepy Crate, home to the horror and true crime subscription box. Welcome to the first episode of season three of Dead Headspace. We are with Richard Shizmar. Say hi, Rich. Hello. How you guys and doing? Pretty good. And uh, my co-host, Brent LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And I am Patrick R. McDonough. We are a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. So, Rich, before we started recording, uh, we were talking about when we had you on the first time last year. And it's a lot. Uh, it was almost a year. Uh, right. It's February. <laughs> began February. So a lot's happened since then. One of them being uh, this book right here. For audio listeners, I'm holding 
hardback of Chasing the Boogeyman. Um, this is this is an amazing book in every way imaginable. But before Brian and I give our uh, kind of our opinion on it, further than that, I want to hear from you, man. What what's it been like? The reception, the, the you know, the love and so forth. It's been cool. Um, you know, Boogeyman was a weird book because it was it's such a personal thing. And uh, it wasn't the book I was supposed to be writing. You know, I like my agent and I had a phone conference and we talked about different ideas. And, you know, I narrowed it down to a couple and was like, you know, I think I'll probably jump on this one. And then we kind of just didn't talk about books for a while. You know, she was doing her thing. I was doing mine and, and was busy with various things. And this book just kept kind of bugging me to, to be written. So I, I was like, you know what, I'll go ahead and write it and I'll surprise her. And yeah, I did. I mean, I, you know. I still remember making the phone call and saying, so I wrote this really personal kind of old fashioned campfire story and I'm the main character and I don't know how the hell that happened. And yeah, there was kind of like silence on the other end. And then she's like, we'll send it on and we'll see, you know, and, but yeah, she ended up digging it and uh, she's, I, you know, she called me back a couple weeks later and she's like, you won me over. Um, Cause there were a lot of questions about the book before she had read it. She's like, you know, well, what if editors like it, but don't want you to be the main character. And I was like, I guess we'll see, you know, cause I'm a behind the scenes kind of guy. I don't get out much. So I think she was very surprised that I decided to, to put myself into the book. Um, but uh, it's just the way it all happened. So yeah, a long winded way of saying that everything for, for boogeyman from the start was kind of just a really cool surprise. Uh, you know, I, I thought it might be this little book that, 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 you know, a handful of people read and appreciated because it was kind of, you know, it's an old fashioned throwback story and it ended up surprising everybody. So that was cool. Yeah. You know what? There, I, go ahead, Brian. I was going to say, was there ever a version of the book, even if it only lived in your mind where you weren't the main character? Uh, you know what? Only in the very beginning. I mean, I started when I started writing the intro piece, the, the, the part about, um, you know, kind of covering some ground and introducing uh, what was supposed to be, you know, the boogeyman book that I wrote back in 1988 or back in 1990, rather. Um, you know, literally the first couple paragraphs I, I was writing as this unnamed narrator. But by the time I got like a page in, I realized it was me. And I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna be able to fake this time that that I'm not writing about myself. And I was like, you know, that's the thing. A lot of true crime books are written by people who actually, you know, were involved on the peripheral or it happened in their town. So I was, and that was, that was kind of the, uh, the catalyst for it is my love of true crime books and, and my respect for the guys and, and, and women who write those because it's such a responsibility. And that was it. I, I was just like, got halfway through page one and I was like, okay, it's gotta be me. And then I had the idea of having, <clears throat> uh, you know, a, a renowned true crime writer actually write a forward to the book. So kind of another layer to, to, to making it seem real. And I had James Renner do that. I really uh, enjoy his work. Um, so yeah, there was never other than for like the first 20 minutes, there was no prior version that didn't have me. And it was just weird because I, I've never done that before. Um, but it was, you know, after the fact, after it had sold and got a nice advance and the pre, you know, sale numbers were, were pre-order numbers were up there. And, you know, I started kind of getting some buzz for for being smart. This is a really unique marketing pool you had. And I'm just like, man, I'm not smart enough to do that. It's just the way it happened. <laughs> um, 
And I was honest. I owned up to it. I was like, nah, you know, I should lie. But it's just the way the story wanted to be told. You know, I wanted to Blair Witch everybody and I wanted to fake that, you know, pretend like this was a real story. Um, but Simon Schuster's lawyers thought that was a very bad idea and talked me out of it. And um, so, yeah, but yeah, originally my idea was this was the real deal. I had um, plans to do a website and, and make it look like a 1990s era website. And uh, I was going to have fake newspaper articles planted online and the whole thing. And I was going to try to Blair Witch a, a literary audience. And uh, it, it, the cool thing is, is it kind of worked out that way anyway. A lot of people said they still Googled things. And, they, you know, despite the fact that it said a novel right on front, you know, they, they still believed it. That intro itself, uh, I was reading it just so, I, I'm like, I know it's, fake but is is it really fake did he because you just said you wrote some of it in the or was that part of the you um i don't know how else to do that i just did ear quotes for those audio listeners uh was it really you that wrote a short story called boogeyman back in that era or or was that all part of the fake intro uh, no you know what i had written a story called the boogeyman and it ended up being titled something else eventually but yeah, I mean, everything that I wrote about, you know, as far as my past, you know, and, and Cemetery Dance Magazine and, and how that started and my interactions with my friends and all those memories, um, those were real. You know, I didn't embellish any of those. And, and about the town where I grew up, um, you know, the history, like 90 percent of it was real every once in a while. And it could have been 100 percent real every once in a while. I just, you know, I, I did research. So I had numbers of, uh, as far as, you know, how many troops were there and all that stuff. And every once in a while, I just, you know, flip some numbers around because I was like, you know what? That's the point of the whole book is, is, is you know, the fact is fiction and fiction is fact in, in many ways. And I kind of just wanted to screw everything up. So, you know, and, and the jazz club that I mentioned in the town's history, that didn't exist. That existed in it you know, it, it, the black spot and I called it something else. But so, yeah, there was some there was some, uh, you know, homages to Stephen King's work in there. But uh, everything other than the murders was pretty true. It did. I, I don't know who said this, who where I saw first, but did it ever occur to you until someone said it that you're kind of making your own subgenre? You know what? My agent and my editor both said that they, they both said. Trust me, you know, however many months from now, you're going to start seeing other books like this coming out and being announced. And they have every time one is announced, they send me the clip or the announcement that they email it to me. And, and, and again, you know, it's like people have said and a couple of the writers who were kind enough to blurb it were like, you know, you've invented a new genre. And I just kind of laugh. And I'm like, again, trust me, man, I'm not bright enough to do that. It was just a happy accident. <laughs> again, I'm not going to lie. That's bad karma. I, I wish I could say, you know, I, I drank some good scotch and, and smoked some wonderful weed and <laughs> and 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 had a vision. You know, I had a, and I went on a vision quest and I invented this new kind of a way to tell a story. But none of that's true. It's just it's it's just the way it happened, you know. Um, and even looking back at like Widow's Point, which some of the reviews said, you know, that that short book was kind of like the first found footage, one of the first found footage, you know, novellas. And again, that's just the way the story wanted to be told. So it was not any brilliance on our part as far as planning or, uh, you know, uh, uh, having a really clear vision. It was just, you know what, I followed where the story went and that's where it went. So I got, uh, yeah, a, a happy accident and uh, I was happy to, to kind of go along for the ride. 
Or do you want to jump you're in? Pulling a, you're pulling a Johnny Cash here. You know, you're wearing black because you didn't have any other clothes. You're, you're singing <laughs> that way because you couldn't sing any better. Yeah. <laughs> you got yeah, to well, take that credit. <laughs> I hope it happens. Yeah. Well, you know what? I figure if I don't take the credit, if I stay honest, then, you know, maybe maybe that it'll keep happening. Um, there you go. So, but yeah, no, it really, you know, it's funny because my, my oldest son, Billy, who, you know, is a writer and a filmmaker and. I talked to him a lot about it as I, was, as I was writing it, and he helped me with the photographs. And he was the first person to say, "Dad, you cannot pretend this is true." And, and Billy is not a warrior in that regard. He's kind, of, you know, he's a, a typical 22-year-old or where he's kind of flies by the hip. And so I was shocked that he was so concerned about it. And he's like, "You know, you you could, you're going to scare people in town, and you're going to you're going." He kept saying, "You're going to drive property values down if they think a serial killer used to live through the, in that block and murders happened on this street." And he was serious. And I was like, "Billy, I, I remember I said, first of all, we don't know whether 50 people are going to read this or 500 or 5,000. You know, who knows?" Um, number one, and and I said, and number two, you know, it's too early to worry about that stuff. I'd rather have fun and 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 you know, let's let's try to make this. And and I had actually talked him into doing a documentary. Um, oh, to, again, to further kind of, uh, you know, enhance the fact that this all really happened. Um, and then that changed later. But we still might do that one day. But, uh, yeah, I can't remember the point of bringing Billy up uh, what we were talking about. But, yeah, he uh, you know, I just remember telling him before it came out, I, I said, because he, he said, are you nervous about it? And I said, you know what? I haven't been nervous about it at all. I haven't really thought what the reception will be like until now, right before it came out. And I said. <laughs> It is such a small, old-fashioned. I kept calling it my my you know hometown campfire story because it was it was kind of I, I could really draw a parallel to the kind of stories I used to tell my friends when we were young to kind of scare them, you know, about the hook, the hook man, or the the boogeyman, or in in the the rubber band man, which I talk about in the book. Mm. Um, you know, it, it didn't exactly break any new uh, boundaries as far as, you know, theme or plot. It was kind of like Halloween, you know, the, the movie um, and, and a really personal. So, yeah, there were some nerves right at the very uh, end before it was coming out. Because I'm thinking, who is going to care about this Edgewood guy story? Um, and I knew that it, it's not structured like a real novel, like a normal novel. You know, there's all this information in the front. But that's because it was written as a true crime book. And I didn't want to change that when it sold, you know, I had the opportunity to kind of spread some of it out. And I was like, nah, you know, that's, that's, I, I modeled it after a true crime book and, and I'm kind of betting that, that it can find an audience despite it's, you know, unorthodox structure. And yeah, I got dinged by some people on Amazon, you know, whenever they ran the ads, you'd see like, I, I read them out loud to my family because I enjoyed them. I, you get like three of them saying he invented a new genre. This is my favorite book of the year. This is my favorite book of the last five years. I couldn't finish it. This book is lame. I got to the end and I read the afterward and I felt cheated. Who cares about this guy's hometown? And he spent 20 pages writing about it. So it, it, again, it kind of put a spotlight on, on how readers are just, they're everywhere. So you know what, write for yourself. Cause you're never going to, if you're writing to make them happy, it's never going to happen. I, I agree. I got a question and Brennan uh, follow up with it. Uh, my question, if you want, but um, before the question, this type of book, uh, for me, not every book works best at the beach. I don't feel relaxed, but with this one, man, I brought it, uh, go to the Cape with my family every summer. And I was just, that's what we did. We went to the beach. I, I read your book 
and I loved it. I'm pretty sure I told you. And I just another thing that I loved about it, and I know that it mimics true crime books, is that you have pictures in there and um, that and uh, kind of bouncing around here. But going to your Facebook videos where 31 videos for every day in October, everything is just like even as we're saying it's fake, it it kind of still feels real, real right. more real than other books. So my question is, is um, being someone that has really no knowledge of how your family works, what did your wife think of not only the book itself, but the fact that like she's in it. And I assume based on real interactions between you and her in college to your young adulthood, how'd she feel about all that? She was the only one who, you know, like I had to get permission slips or, or, you know, not permission slips. I sound like I'm in school, but, uh, you know, permission release forms. So, like all my friends had to sign them. Anyone who was in a photograph, anyone who I talked about extensively, you know, because Simon Schuster's law legal department, they were up my butt, man. And uh, so I covered all my bases and, and done a ton of interviews and people have asked, you know, how did your friends feel and all that? And you're like one of the first to ask about my wife, but I, I usually tried to mention the fact that out of all the people I mentioned in the book and dozens who, who really exist in, in, in actual life, she was the only one who, who did not want to be included. She's like, less is more. And I remember when I, when I, you know, turned it into Simon and Schuster thinking, if I get a note back that says, if I get an editorial note that says we need 20 more pages, you know, involving your wife, I'm like, I'm in trouble because she was like, less is more. I don't need to be in there. And, you know, you know, she's, she's again, I'm behind the scenes and she's like really behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, she, she loved the book and, and she understood why she had to be in it, but less was more for her. And uh, I, I kind of tiptoed the line and, and tried to, you know, it, it, like you said, I mean, the stuff that is in there is, uh, is is genuine and and happened uh as closest to you know until you got to the murders and then you know she was never worried about you know prank callers and that kind of stuff but <laughs> yeah you know where we went out to eat and we went to the mall and we did this and and she was an integral part of she was there in the beginning of cemetery dance and you know she was in physical therapy schools so she was busy and i was busy and you know doing our own things but being together so yeah i mean uh yeah, and I had to do that. That's just what I told her. I was like, if I'm going to put that stuff out there, it's got to be real and it's got to be honest. And I think that's why the book ultimately got such a positive reaction is because there's a lot of heart and a lot of honesty in there. And you know, I've heard from a lot of people who have said, I've never read a serial killer novel with that much heart. And I, it always makes me laugh because I'm like, yeah, you know, you got a point. You know, it usually does. Serial killer novels aren't usually... Uh, you know, love letters to, to, to the main character's family and hometown. So I'm like, I kind of got away with something there, but yeah, all my friends love it. You know, they're like, I want, you know, I, they all wanted more FaceTime. Trust me. That's Kara was like, just, you know, as much of me as you can cut out the better. You know, it's funny. Um, and Brennan, please jump in after this. Uh, my wife's name is Tara. And you saying that I laughed when you first said that her initial reaction, because that, That'd be my wife's reaction. And pretty sure she'd be like, I, I don't want in it. <laughs> Something like that. So yeah, I get it. I, I totally get it. Yeah, um, I enjoyed I enjoyed kind of yanking her chain on the days that I was actually writing about her and kind of, you know, rubbing my hands and go, Yeah, I read a lot about you today. And she's like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want <laughs> And then she was anxious to read it when it was finished, but at the same time, she she had, you know, she was also very trepidatious because she didn't, you know, she didn't want to read about herself. But 
Uh, yeah, I think I pulled off that part well enough with regarding her to to be past any trouble. <laughs> you know what you said about the the heart. I think there's a lot to you know what made the book work. There, you were talking about how there were some readers who didn't want to read 20 pages of you know kind of setting up the town for lack of better words, but. Uh, in any small town horror, serial killer or otherwise, like the town's got to kind of live and breathe. And I thought uh, I thought it did such a nice job of pulling that off. But, you know, in a way that really fit in better with true crime than your, you know, typical coming of age or, you know, uh, even just weird small town novel. Um, so uh, as far as a follow up question to one of Patrick's points a while ago, uh, when you were talking about uh, Billy kind of almost being like horrified at what people were going to think at first, right. it reminded me when, you know, we talked to uh, Todd Keesling who wrote uh, Devil's Creek. He was not quiet about, you know, the fact that he based that town off his hometown in Kentucky. So I I'm curious, you know, the people you know well and that had to sign release forms were sound psyched about it, but what about the uh, other people that are a little further more on the outside? Have you gotten any response that way? I, I got a ton of response. And again, there, there were two things that were most kind of, and, and I should have expected it to some degree, or I've, I, I should have at least been aware of it. Again, I, I'm like, man, you know, I'm like a you know flighty teenager because I, I just, I, I think I was just, the process was such, such an organic, rewarding, fun process for me. That I, I feel like I use my and, and my the, the critics who didn't like it and the readers who didn't like it are going to be like nodding their head enthusiastically right now. But I was going to say it's almost like I didn't use the majority of my brain to write this book. It just came out, you know, and, and I did describe it that way. I said there's some books that they're there fully formed and you're kind of just brushing dirt and debris away from them because that's all you have to do. They're there. And in a lot of ways, that's how this book felt for me. Um it was fun to write. It was a fast, I wrote the book in like three months. Um, it, uh, you know, my parents have been gone for 20 years almost. So while I wrote the book, they were here and all my family, you know, and, and friends were back in town. And it, it, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed sitting down at the keyboard every day. And, uh, but yeah, it, uh, you know, I just, I don't know. It's, it's, I've never had an experience like it before. And, and hopefully I'll have an ex a similar experience with the next book, which I'm just starting. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of terrified that I won't, <laughs> but yeah, I just, uh, you know, it, it, I, I've never had that experience like that before where it just kind of, you know, rolled out. And the two surprises that I'm finally getting to here were one was, it, and I should have expected it, but when I talked about, you know, my growing up, all the experience, all the different things we did, throwing stuff at cars, having crab apple battles, you know, snowball battles and popping tar bubbles, all those things, you know, I, I didn't, and again, until the last minute think, huh, I wonder if anyone's going to even relate to that, but I should have known better because I heard from people all over the country and actually, you know, from overseas too, who, who were like, oh my God, we, we had the same childhood and people who, who reveled in that and, and have held on to those memories, but also a lot of people who had kind of forgotten. And I, again, I have countless emails from people who have, I, I probably have a half a dozen who say, I forgot all about popping tar, hot tar bubbles in the road until I read that in your book. And I forgot all about jumping ramp, ramps on my bike 
until I read your book. And it, that was really neat. And it was really rewarding to have these people come and they were thanking me. They're like, thank you for reminding me. Um, so that was neat. And then the other thing is that you asked about is the hometown. Um, the response was overwhelming. And I think, you know, I describe the town, honestly, um, it's a much rougher place right now um, than back in the 80s and still in the 80s. And, and I talk about it in the book. You know, I dated girls whose parents didn't want them to go back to Edgewood because it was, you know, it was the it was the tougher side of the tracks when it came to Hartford County, where I grew up. Um, so the, re the response from now, not only from the people I know and grew up with, um, but from everybody in Edgewood has been, you know, wonderful. And a lot of people have said that the, in a lot of ways, the book is a love letter to Edgewood too, which I am so happy with, because I, like I said, it'll, it'll always be my hometown. Um, but we did a local signing actually at a restaurant, a new restaurant. The owner reached out to me and he really wanted to do this. And I was like, okay, you know, was, I wasn't doing a lot of in-person stuff because of COVID, but we did this and like 250 people showed up and there were lines out in the parking lot. And, and I knew maybe, you know, maybe 20% of them, but the other 80% were all Edgewood people who had come together to kind of celebrate this book. And it was neat. I've never, I've had some really fun signings, but I've never had anything like that where I signed for three and a half hours straight. And there were people out in the parking lot and everyone had a different story about Edgewood. So that was, that was cool. And the fact that they all really enjoyed it was, was kind of icing on top. That's that amazing. is so cool. Yeah. yeah. yeah and I didn't expect that. Hear. I didn't yeah. expect it. The only person who was mad was when I did those videos, which you guys were talking about. And I, I walked up the Myers house driveway. I knew it'd be that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and somebody lives up on the side there, like the granddaughter of the owner of the house now or something. And evidently like her car got vandalized like a week later. And she's like, I know it's because of all this boogeyman stuff. And, and, uh, but then there's like, 20 posts on Facebook. Evidently she has a quite a colorful personal life. And I got all these private messages from people. I don't know. Don't even worry about it. We all know who did it. Her ex-boyfriend, he's a dead. And I'm just like, Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, that was the only person who wasn't happy, but uh, everyone else was. And the local library did this beautiful display window. And um, you know, the principal of Edgewood high school has a signed copy displayed in his office. People That's are so cool, man. So yeah, yeah it's uh that, that's a neat feeling. Cause like I said, I love Edgewood. It's my roots and I live, you know, 20 minutes away now and anything, you know, it's my soft spot. You know, anything somebody from Edgewood asked me, I'm pretty much going to say yes, because, uh, <laughs> because growing up there was, yeah, it, it, it you know, it, it's where my parents put down their roots and, and raised the family. So I, I'll always feel like I'm indebted to the place. You could feel that's that. really cool. You could that's really, uh, that's, I, I was just going to throw out, man. Like that's, that's, about the nicest thing I've heard all day, just to hear that the town rally behind it. Um, it you know, I, 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 I wasn't expecting some, you know, big, you know, uh, uh, mob of people with, with torches, but, you know, right. to hear that you got this unanimously positive response, man, that just, that just feels good. Well, and it's crazy. Cause it's, you know, there's girls dying in this book and, and, yeah. and, you know, and everyone kind of has to kind of catch themselves because they're like, oh, I love the book. You talked about the town. You you reminded me of, you know, getting ice cream cones here and doing this. And I just I loved every word of it. And then they kind of stop and they go, you know, well, only because the, the, the girls never really got killed. You know, that part was made up. And I'm like, yes, I, I feel the same way when I say I have so much fun writing this book. And then I'm like, oh, you know, four girls were killed and somebody <laughs> else was attacked. And, you know, but yeah, it's it's just a, it's a weird book. I mean, any way you look at it, it's like. It's like, yeah, serial killer books probably shouldn't be, 
you know, filled with, with, you know, love for your family and friends and that sense of longing and nostalgia for the past and, and all that. But it's just the way, again, it's just the way it worked out. My, um, one of my favorite scenes in the entire book was when a young you and your father were looking down at the town and it's snowing out. And man, like I, I grew up in a small town and um, similar to Brennan in Massachusetts. And in the nineties, it was just, uh, it's not bad now, but um, it was more, there was plenty more woods. I'll put it that way. Like we could run around and, and, you wouldn't hit a street for a while, but now um, before my folks moved out of there last this past year, uh, me and my wife were walking and I'm like, Hey, that wasn't there. And I just ca- caught myself really thinking about it. And um, you're kind of making me think of how I, I revisited my old childhood, my old stomping grounds. And, and then we walked to the, uh, the soccer field, the next to it is a playground and it's literally flattened. Uh, it's um, there's a, like a six foot high gate surrounding the entire area. And I'm like, I'm glad I don't live there here anymore because this is depressing, but that kind of links up to the part of remembering Um, all three of us are writers. We uh, probably put ourselves in our past in more ways than we realize in every story. Um, I'm curious, Rich, do you think that people that actively read and actively write creatively have a more uh, a better connection to a childlike mentality. And what I mean by that is um, you don't grow up uh, audio listeners. I'm doing ear quotes. You don't grow up meaning you're not having fun. That's what I think about when people say grow up, it means just do boring stuff and don't <laughs> have fun. Well, no, no, I'm with you. Cause I, I'm just, yeah, I always refer to them as grownups. Um, and my kids know that. And my kids, friends who grew up with me know that I'm not a normal dad and that Kara's not a normal mom. We're young at heart and uh, still mischievous and adventuresome. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, trust me, I've been accused of being a big kid my whole life and <clears throat> I still am in the doghouse as much as my sons, if not more for doing, you know, ridiculous things. But, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of writers like that. The thing, and I, I was talking about this earlier today. Um, I, the thing that I think it, it, that always really marks someone as, uh, you know, you could be a writer, or do you, you know, do you journal? Because I have a feeling is we tend to we're we're the ones who remember, and uh, like there's there's a group of Edgewood guys who I've reconnected with because of this book. Um, guys I played lacrosse with back in the day, and and. And I, a couple of them I played lacrosse with in college, but hadn't seen them in 20 years. And um, they kind of came out of the woodwork. They all came to the signings and I'm in, I'm in a big text thread with them now. There's about a dozen of us. And there's one guy, and I just talked about this to a friend earlier today. I'm like, you know, this guy, Steve, he would have been, he, he's the writer in that group because he has, he's the one who remembers all these things. And that's always been me. I always remember the details of, of our of our childhood, and and I, I kind of referenced it in Boogeyman with with my buddy Jimmy Cavanaugh in that scene where we're sitting in the car and he's almost, he's kind of forgotten about the Myers house, even though it it held so many precious memories when we were younger. And I is there was I, I kind of expressed that sense of disappointment and disbelief that hey, wait, how could you forget that? You know, I've never forgotten it for a second. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's and, and I think in some ways that goes hand in hand with 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 being, you know, uh, childlike or again, being young at heart, because I think uh, it's it's like the beginning of Boy's Life, the McCammon book, which is one of my favorites. And, and there's that 
kind of bit of poetry in the beginning where he talks about how, you know, grownups, they have it educated out of them, spanked out of them, uh, churched out of them, you know, um, and it's the people who can kind of hold on to the whirlwinds and the fireflies that, that, you know, remain young at heart. And that's, I, I think a lot of writers are like that. It's, I think it's sometimes it's because they remember, you know, you don't forget what it was like and what it felt like. And uh, yeah. And in some ways that's what Boogeyman ended up being about too, is, is the, you know, kind of being able to go back into that well of all those memories. Yeah. You, you know, and with, you know, you didn't mention the word nostalgia, but it's like, it's just floating in the air, just waiting to be mentioned. And with nostalgia, like I always felt like it was not necessarily a longing for specific, let's say music or specific this or that, but it's more just things we associate with when we were kids and that kind of innocence and freedom. And it seems to me like, you know, writers have almost a duty to capture that, you know, that uh, fiction writers, your, your job is to help people kind of find that escape. And if you can channel that, you know, feeling of innocence and that feeling of getting out of school at three o'clock and not having a damn thing to do until somebody chased you down when the sun went down. um, Like that's, that's what it is. And um, you know, boogeyman absolutely grabs onto that. And it's interesting because some readers, you know, don't want that sense of nostalgia, you know, when you connect with a reader who, who embraces that and appreciates that man, because you can tell just, again, just by me hearing what you just talked about. But there are some people who, you know, the last thing in the world they want to remember is what it felt like to be all sweaty and rolling around in the grass and being itchy and, and, you know, chasing fireflies in the side. And some of them are because they never had, you know, uh, they never had, you know, positive attachments to those memories. And some of them, Mm -hmm. sadly enough, never had those memories at all, Um, which I understand, you know, but to me, that connection, I always say it's like stepping into a time machine and you go back and it's like, for me personally, it's like, I almost, you know, you have to kind of catch your breath because the feeling is so strong. And it's like, I've, I've been fortunate in my life and I've experienced some amazing moments. Um, But I'll tell you what, I, I would trade a handful of them to go back and to walk into my local drugstore and walk out with four packs of baseball cards and open those baseball cards in 1976, because that feeling, you know, when you have, you know, it's like that old kind of cliche, you never know, you never realize that last time when you and your friends all meet outside and play for the last time, it's just gone before you know it, you know, you look back and you're like, man, that was two years ago. And then it's 20 and 30 years ago. So yeah, it's, 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 it's guys and girls like that who, who hold tight to those memories and those feelings that I think if you're, if you're able to connect with that man, you've got a reader for life. And uh, again, the, the cool thing f- for me at least is, uh, you know, I've never tried to do that. I've never been, again, I'm not being self-effacing. I'm being honest, you know, I've never been kind of like clever enough to try to, you know, mold a piece of fiction like that. I kind of just sit down and, and let it come out and, uh, it has, you know, it has, it's, it's present in a lot of my work, you know, and sometimes too much, you know, I do know that I can be overly sentimental and and I pull back on things uh, on purpose from times because I want to, you know, I want to be as honest to the reader as I can, but yeah, I mean, that's what I love about you guys. You guys get that, you know, you read Ronald Kelly, you know, McCammon and uh, you know, some of Stephen King's (laughs) best stuff is stuff where he's kind of making that connection to, to the past. It it felt that's, I was just going to say, go ahead. (laughs) Dancing with her words. I was going to say it felt like a Stephen King book 
strictly in the sense where he um, separated himself in a lot of ways when he started, but one of them was that he just talked about small town America and the details about it. And the details are very important with that because unlike a big city, small town America is full of the important things, which is the people, which is the places you go to and so forth. And that's what you captured. That's why for me, it's a beach book and it will be a beach book again in the near future. Uh, Brennan, sorry for rudely interrupting, sir. No, it's going to keep happening apparently, but uh, <laughs> no, no worries. Um, so, you know, what what hit me about all that is, you know, you mentioned the uh, crab apple fights and that one stuck with me because, you know, I still remember the crab apple tree behind my, uh, you know, uh, grade one through five school and just spending time whipping them at each other. And oh, yeah. I, I, it, it takes, you know, it certainly you need to, your reader needs to kind of have that connection. But, you know, if we think of that on a very like surface level, like a bunch of kids chucking these hard objects at each other, going home bruised and sore and potentially bleeding. And as a writer, it's your job to somehow turn that into a desirable event. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that's that's exactly what the best, uh, you know, take horror out of it. The best literature that kind of revisits and, you know, latches onto that nostalgia can do. It's a fucking talent. Like there's no there's no bones about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, got, people are either going to get that or not, because, you know, I can sit here as a fully grown adult and say there's nothing quite like, you know, plunking one of your best friends in the world and you know he's not wearing a shirt he's got his back turned to you there's no honor in crab apple battles taking that five foot running start and just cranking him right in the square of his back with a crab apple he's grabbing at the bottom of his back with both hands and he's writhing around and, and if, if he drops on the ground you're going to pluck him again you know so yeah that's just part of being a kid and 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 again i mean uh, unfortunately or fortunately if 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 I had a crab apple bat, uh, tree here in my yard and my friends were here as 50 something year olds, we would still do that. Um, and again, I'm fortunate that the guys I've grown up with, I'm still close with a bunch of them and I still see a bunch of them on a regular basis. So yeah, we're, we're those kind of idiots that, you know, other grownups drive by and they're like, why are they wrestling in the, in the dirt? And it's because somebody, you know, nailed someone with a dirt clog, but yeah, I mean, you guys, you know, you guys got what I intended in the book and, and, you know, you mentioned the, the walking, um, you know, seeing the, the Christmas lights and the snow and stuff with my father. And it's like that scene and the scene where I'm, I'm sledding and I'm walking home by myself because all my friends have gone in and, and I see my house in the distance. And I kind of have that, that revelation, that moment where I realize that, you know, nothing's ever going to be the same again. And, yep. and all growing up and people are going to leave and, and people are even going to die. And it's just like, you know, it's that, that's that loss of innocence in a very organic way, you know, not because there's a killer in town, but just because this is how life works. You know, you grow up and you go your separate ways and, and people leave and, and all that. And I had that moment and I've always said, that's my, I've never written about it before. I've never really told people about it before. Um, but I put it in here. And again, it was, it was, it was kind of a, a, a sense of trying to be as honest as I could. Um, Cause I felt like I owed that to the story. And, and it was, it, it struck me. It was, it was like right away. It was like, that was the deer in stand by me, you know, when Stephen King, where he says, you know, he saw the deer and he's like, I've never spoken of it or written of it until now. And it's like, I think we all have those stories that, uh, that are all ours until we, you know, we, we let them go. And it was the same thing with my dad looking at the Christmas lights. You know, I, my sisters read that and they're like, that really happened. I'm like, yeah, 
you know. Um, so, yeah, it's it, for those reasons. And it'll always be a really special book to me. And again, I'm just, you know, you asked me what I expected or, or how it's been. And it's like, yeah, if you would have told me that it would have gone through four printings and been on the New York Times bestseller list and all that, I would have laughed and I would have said you're insane. And, uh, you know, um, no expectations of that. I mean, Simon & Schuster did a great job. I worked my ass off personally promoting it because it was a Simon & Schuster book. And I felt like for the first time in a long time, I felt like, uh oh, you know, I, they, they paid me a nice chunk of money and they really believed in the book. And I know it's a weird book, so I'm going to work really hard to reward that trust. <laughs> and uh, and I did, you know, and, and and it all worked out. So, again, I, you know, I've always said I'm a lucky SOB, but after the experience with this book, I, I'm doubly so. Yeah. Uh, plus, it had, uh, I know, a few good words and two of them were uh, Stephen King and someone that he considers one of the best in the crime business, uh, Don Winslow. So. Even though you're friends with King, how's it seriously? How's it feel to hear him say those nice things? And and from here and Don, what the the guy's internationally a bestseller in the crime. Yeah, Don is such a cool guy, and I and I don't know him really well. (laughs) I I don't know him really well. I I, you know I I you know him and Harlan Coben came out and said something really nice, and and again, I mean, I asked Harlan early on, hey, you know. Mr. Coben, you think you can have time to read this? And he's like, I'll do my best. But, and I didn't think he would, but I sent it up and I never bugged him again. Cause it's just not my thing, but uh, to have him tweet that out was nice. And Steve, you know, Steve tells me the truth. That's the good thing of, of, you know, he's a real friend. Yeah. So, so when he said he liked it and he, and he talked about what he liked and, you know, one of the best things he said about that book, which was never used in a blurb or anything, was he just said, you know, when he read that interview at the end, he was alone in the house with, uh, with Molly. And he said, it just, you know, it, it freaked him out so much. He had to stop reading and he, and he read the rest of the next morning in the daylight. And I was like, okay, I, you know, I thought that interview was creepy as hell. If you really kind of read between the lines of what wasn't said and, and I'm like, but to hear you say that meant the world. And and you know what? He had, a, you know, he had some constructive criticism and, and a couple spots where the book really benefited because I kind of thought hmm, he's one time where he just he's like, and I think you should add this line at the end of this. And I wasn't sure at first. And then the more I thought about it, I'm like, son of a bitch, he's right. So I, I actually, you know, added back the, the line back in. And one of the first reviews talked about that line. And I'm like, well, <laughs> No wonder. So, yeah, no, it, it, all that feels wonderful. I mean, you know, Carolyn Kepnes and all the other people who Linwood Barclay, who were kind enough, because um, that's not fun. You know, you guys know that it's not fun to send out a book and say, hey, if you guys don't mind, you know. But again, it, it was a Simon Schuster thing where I was kind of just like. You know, there was that moment of kind of celebration and satisfaction where it's like, wow, they really like the book. They really get it. They don't want to change everything. And. And they actually paid me, uh, you know, <laughs> a really nice bunch of money and they're going to promote it. And then you're like, oh, God, you know, I better step up and do my part. So, you know, getting the blurbs and, and doing book plates and, and kind of just really hustling. I, I really enjoyed it. It reminded me of how I built my business, you know, 30 years ago, um, just kind of trying to cover every little nook and cranny. And, uh, you know, nothing was too small. And I always use the analogy you guys have probably seen me do it of selling glasses of lemonade. And I was like, you know what? Every book's a cup of uh, one of those damn wax cups of, of lemonade. <laughs> selling. So I'm like, every I'm going to hustle and sell every one I can. And, uh, but yeah, I never thought it would, you know, 
open up at 10 on the New York times and all that, that was ridiculous. And again, I'm, I must've been really a good guy in a previous life. Cause <laughs> you know, that was cool. It's well-deserved and uh, you're a good guy. Now you, you silly bastard. So, <laughs> let, let, oh, I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about um, you and your goofball friends and fart joke. Here we go. Oh, here we so, go. <laughs> no, no, that's I it. I didn't talk about farts in the book, did I? No. <laughs> uh, yeah. I now you got to yeah, write yeah. a sequel. <laughs> Author's preferred edition. I actually am going to write a sequel. Um, oh, shit, really? Yeah, yeah. That's that's actually the book that I, I, I say I'm about to start, but I've already started it. I've just Ooh. been... I haven't done anything chronologically yet, but I've, I've got a, you know, a chunk down on paper and, and yeah, I, I did a, I signed a two book deal with Simon and Schuster about a month ago. Um, Congrats, man. Right before the holidays. Thank you. And and the first one is going to be a direct sequel, which people are like, well, how can it be a direct sequel? Cause he's in jail. And I'm like, Hannibal Lecter was in jail too. So be quiet. <laughs> um, Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy was yeah. in jail and he helped find the green river killer. So yeah, exactly. So really, yeah. So I, so, yeah, and I, I, I wasn't going to do it, but one day I was out riding the lawnmower and because and a lot of people asked me and I'm like, no, nah, you know, and I'm like, that's all I want to do is write another book where I'm a character in it. And, and I actually once I sold this, I promised both my agent and my editor, I'm like, I will never try to sell you a book with me as a character again. Two is enough. But, but anyway, I was mowing the lawn and I had what came to me was the perfect ending to chapter one. Um and I thought because I had that, I'm like, oh, you know, it's really good. It's really smart. And I never feel that way about anything I'm doing. And I'm like, uh, so I got to write it. So, yeah. So that's that's kind of where that came about. And I put together, a, you know, a, an outline for it. And, and uh, my agent, who Kristen Nelson, who's wonderful, she was able to convince them to do it again with me. And so, yeah, that'll that'll be um, the next thing that I'm that I'm writing and I'm excited, you know, I get to, you know, it's, it's not Edgewood 1988. It's, it's Edgewood, um, you know, 2024, I think in the book. So, but uh, bad wow. things are still happening and uh, I'm not, once again, I'm kind of torn by that whole fascination with, with the dark stuff that happens and trying to be, you know, a family guy. And uh, so, it, yeah, it's another adventure where, People are going to kind of shake their head and say, it's just more guys, not too bright, but he's fun to follow around for 300 pages. He, that interview was creepy. Brennan, um, jump in afterwards, uh, unless you want to talk more about this with uh, Gwendy. Jump, jump in afterwards? After what? Are you going to ask a question or? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so, sorry, Rich, we've been off for about two months. No, we're, uh, we, yeah, yeah. This gotta, is peak form. This is yeah. This, <laughs> this is, is at our season form, man. <laughs> this is at our best. So I want to talk about promotion uh, because you can never have enough authors that are fortunate enough in like your position to kind of give a little tip here or there for promotion, even at that level, to uh, newer writers or writers that are currently. No, not, but uh, just on the indie scene. So I was wondering if there's any tips that you may have for that. You know, the biggest tip I could give would would be, you know, go back to, you know, go back a year in my Facebook and Twitter and just look at all the stuff that I did. You know, I was like, I, I was the kid who used to kind of throw, you know, like carnivals. And I think I talked about this in the book, maybe, but I would throw like carnivals 
in my side yard and get rid of my old toys as prizes. And, and I would, uh, I would, th- I would have a magic show in my, uh, in the breezeway of my house. And, and my friends will still tell you, they, they, they loved it. They're like, you were the worst damn mus- magician I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but you paid a nickel a piece to come <laughs> in and watch. Didn't you? Um, and then the whole lemonade stand thing, there's always been that kind of entrepreneur in me. And I enjoy that part um, of kind of just, you know, taking something and seeing, you know, how many people I can kind of pull in. And, and, and I really did kind of go back to that. Like I said, nothing was too small. You know, the book plate idea was, was, you know, again, lots of authors have done it, um, but it snowballed. And I mean, I ended up doing 10,000, a total of 10,000 book plates. And the largest order I ever placed was 2,000. I mean, I, I, I remember in the beginning, I did 1,000. Then I was like, oh, I need 1,000 more. And I think I did that up to about five. And then I was like, well, maybe I better get 2,000. And then, you know, so I nickeled and dimed my way to, and, and those were, you know, I have about 500 left. So, you know, 9,500 of those suckers are, are, you know, some of them I'm sure went right to trash cans because I sent there them we to go. a lot of stores. <laughs> but, uh you know, that was one aspect. I, you know, I put some money into Amazon advertising, which some people would be like, you know, how could you do that? But I, I kind of wanted to cover every basis. And I, mm-hmm. I, I gave plenty of free stuff to independent stores and I reached out and, um, you know, but I, I didn't ignore, you know, BAM and Barnes and Noble were really good to me. Um, nice. I tried to just, I tried to, you know, cover every base that I could think of. You know, and, and I had some benefits because of the publishing company. I was able to say, hey, you know, for the next week, whoever pre-orders a book and sends it to me, I'm going to, you know, have my uh, office send you a free copy of blank. You know, and, and most writers don't have that freedom. Yeah. Um, but you know what I told people is I said, you know what, chapbooks, you can get a chapbook locally produced and you can do it fairly inexpensively. And, and people like to get something for free. They like to get a bonus. Damn, and, that's a great idea. Seriously, I've never heard. We've talked to a bunch of people. Over 100, I think. <laughs> Just, it's well over 100. Seriously, over 150 maybe now. No one's ever said that piece of advice. That's great. Yeah, trust me. I mean, if you if you guys printed up 100 chap, and, and the thing is, is nowadays you can do them with a really nice copier and you can, you know, saddle stitch them yourself. Um, if you said, hey, the next 100 people who pre-order this book and send me confirmation of their pre-order, I'll send you this. You know, it's going to cost you a buck a piece posted. So it's going to cost you some money, but it, it, it's a drop in the bucket, it, it, you know, compared to going to a big magazine or a big publication and pulling and doing a sixth of a page display ad or something. Um, the Amazon advertising was, was successful for us. So I, uh, that was my big thing. I just tried to cover every little nook and cranny. And when the books came out, I drove around to a bunch of bookstores and I signed their stock and I, you know, felt like an idiot in many cases, but <laughs> then I would tweet and say, Hey, there's signed copies. So-and-so. And, inevitably they'd be gone in a day or two. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, I kind of hustled and enjoyed it. And, you know, that when I built the business, I remember I used to spend a lot of, uh, just a lot of time reminding myself, Hey, just keep doing what you're doing. Cause other people aren't stubborn, hardheaded, hardworking, or dumb enough to do this. And, you, you know, if, if you can, stay on this track, you're going to outlast a lot of them. And that's, that's what happened. So it's the same thing with, with trying to promote a book is, is I kind of just kind of went back to that mindset and said, you know what, just put in the hours. It's not rocket science, just put in the hours and try to spread the word. And fortunately, you know, social media, the people who I'm associated with, you know, my friends on these, these social networks are amazing. You know, I've, I've in 10 years, I've had to block like five people for being an idiot and, 
just I, I feel like I have this wonderful street team uh, uh, army of people who are willing to go to stores and deliver stuff for me and and actually thank me for for letting them help me, which I am always like, no, 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 you know, <laughs> no, I'm thanking you because you're doing me a favor. And I got a thank you email from someone today who dropped off Wendy book plates at a store and thanked me. And I was just like, no, thank you. I said, that's that is you don't understand how big of a help that is, because. Some stores are very receptive to receiving them directly and others, you know, you kind of have to put them in front of their nose and say, hey, look, these are really professionally done and they're nice and it's a real signature. (laughs) And you'll actually look like a a bookseller who cares by slapping them in the book. So, yeah, that's my biggest advice is just, uh, you know, treat it as uh, as you're selling cups of lemonade on the corner. Before we go to Gwendy, actually, you brought up something talked about perseverance um in uh paraphrasing your words be the dumb guy that kind of sticks it out because uh, a lot of people will fall by the wayside uh my words um not riches but i want to stick with that because um the was it the last three years i've really been focusing a lot more than the pre before that i was on like Twitter for, I don't know, six, seven years. And I never really focused too much on that until I, I, I really dove into the independent side of the uh, horror, crime, whatever community. And there, <laughs> there, there's a section where it's very toxic. And it seems like a lot of complaints. And I'm bringing this up because I always wonder, I'm like, it just kind of sounds like you're here to complain and, and you're not happy because you're complaining about the thing that I'm happy about writing books and reading books and talking to like-minded folks, uh, the things that my friends are happy about. So I'm curious with the people, the time you spent publishing, have you noticed trends like that where there's, and it doesn't have to be a specific example, like where there's people that complain just to complain about something. It happens to be that they're a writer. Um, Cause you got guys like Ronald Kelly like we talked about Brian Keene, uh, Robert McCammon, like those dudes clearly love to write and they do it well um, and they stick by it. I- I'm just wondering, there had to be a bunch of other people that started when they started or before, mm-hmm. but they're not around. No one talks about them. Oh my them. gosh. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, coming up in the eighties and nineties and all those small press magazines that existed back then um, that were actual magazines because there was no online back then. Yes, you really got to see who was up and coming and who was in every other magazine. And Ronald Kelly was one of them. And so was Joe Lansdale and Bentley Little and Brian Keene eventually and the others. And then you would see others disappear. Um, But yeah, to go back to the complaining part, people, you know, man, it's just it's become more prevalent. And again, I'm not I'm not going to get into a political discussion, but it's become more prevalent in the last, you know, five, six, seven years that there's a lot of people who are unhappy and are just going to go out of their way to complain and they're going to go out of their way to be toxic and confrontational and all that. I mean, there's always been people like that right from the very beginning of our business. You know, I always tell you, look, as a publisher, you you only get that first year to two years where you're the new guy on the block. And even though you are 
filled with imperfection in your your productions and all that you still are kind of the apple in everyone's eye because you're the new kid on the block and and they usually give the new guy the benefit of the doubt and then all of a sudden you become more successful and you're going to get those people who are like well they're getting too big for their pants you know full color covers you know they're going to go out of business in six months you watch and and you know three months later they're act they're like actively rooting for you to go out of business um so, yeah, we've seen it all. And then after that, you know, you, you get a second wave and then and 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 I've seen it happen with other publishers. And and the thing is, is there's always some element of truth to it. It's like I always tell people, I'm like, hey, anyone who you know, I don't listen to the complaints, but I also don't listen to all the praise. I appreciate it. We're always trying to get better. Um, and if you can honestly feel that way and you honestly know you're out there busting your ass and doing the best you can, then you know what? You kind of you're able to kind of legitimately step back and say. Hey, you know, I'm trying to get better every day. I'm listening to the constructive, polite criticism and the rest of it. I just wash away and I don't listen to. And I've always been able to do that. And it's something that, you know, Brian Freeman, who just kind of after 20 years is, is, is staking out on his own. And we've had this talk a lot. You know, Brian had to learn to kind of grow that thicker skin because, you know, he, he, he came, you know, he came to CD right out of college and he was a fresh faced kid. And, and eventually, yeah, Brian got to the same point where it's like, there's that fine line between being a professional and, and addressing people's complaints and then realizing that no matter what you say or do, you're not going to make this person happy. So therefore the thing you have to do is just ignore them and go on your way. And, and that's been a big key to our success, even from the very beginning is I never listened too closely to the praise I never listened too closely to the criticism. I always followed my own vision and my own path. And with the magazine and the book publishing company, I actually did have a vision of, of how I wanted things to progress and been, have been pretty fortunate that that's happened. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, Twitter and all that. I hear all the time about people having drama and all that. And I've just always stayed away. You know, if someone, you know, if someone is going to get real vocal and, and it's really easy to hit the block button. And it, for me, it's always been easy to ignore. Cause I'm just like, dude, I've been doing this 30 years. Trust me. Anything you have to say has been said before. Didn't bother me then. It's not going to bother me now. I'm going to work tomorrow as usual. And guess what? If, if you're not happy, somebody else will listen to you because it's not going to be me. I've always been stubborn and very focused in that way. Uh, I don't have time for it. And um, you know, and I've always told people, I'm like, you know, I can be a very cocky guy on like the basketball court or something, you know, I grew up as an athlete. So, um, and the only time it ever crosses over into that, you know, business kind of a sense is, is, you know, I always have had this feeling and you should too, with your show and your writing, both of you. And it's just, don't ever bet against me because you'll lose. Cause I will, I will work my ass off 24 seven to ensure that you lose and I'm stubborn and I'm hard headed and I've got that Edgewood work ethic that I learned from my dad and, and all the other kids' dads in the neighborhood. So you won't win. So that's just that's the only time I ever I've I've never once said you are going to love this story I wrote. You are going to love this book. I, I hear writers do that all the time and it sends a chill down my spine because I'm like, how can they do that? Because I, I know that no matter how much I love this story. You know, 30 percent of the people out there, if I'm lucky, are, are, are going to disagree. And so that's a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. I've learned that after 30 years. So I've never done that. I've never even on a book I've edited. I've never said you are going to love this collection because I know. But it, again, it's the one time where, you know, they might be a man that's just more guys cocky because I'll look I'll look anybody straight in the eye and I'll say, hey, go ahead. Bet against me. You'll lose. I guarantee it. That's the Larry Bird attitude. I like, sir. But in all in all seriousness. No, I, I am. You can ask Brian. I am like that with the show. 
Uh, I won't name specifics, but I think we're a phenomenal product because I I had to cool it off. Well, I won't get into the details of that either, but I had to take a step <laughs> back because um, not Kara, but Rhymes <laughs> said, uh, yeah, you gotta, gotta chill out with that, which made sense. But yeah, I want to improve. I like, I like compliments too, but like, it's like a beta reader. I've learned to rely on two pretty much heavily. Mm-hmm. Brennan's one of them because uh, the moment I get beta notes back that are just trying to pat me on the back, I'm not going to you ever again. Um, yeah. As far as the show goes, I want to keep, I want to give reasons and I'm super vocal about this. Uh, I want to give reasons for people like you or Peter Straub. Like we still want newer writers, but I want to talk to the authors I grew up loving, you know, man, uh, R.L. Stein probably will never happen, but I don't give a fuck. I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, and you don't know. I mean, I felt the same way back in the day, you know, I'll, I hope to publish Stephen King in, a, in the magazine one day, you know, probably yeah. never happened. And you just don't know. And, and, and that's the thing. I mean, you make it your own, you have your own vision. Um, you know, I remember, you know, I remember some reviews that were like, you know, yeah, some material, and this is way back, you know, issue six, issue four, issue 15, you know, it, it's, yeah, you know, they were able to publish Joe Lansdale and Ramsey Campbell and Andrew Vax, but obviously, you know, they were trunk stories and that's how he got them because, oh, and I remember, oh. and I just remember thinking, you know, that's the only reason Chismar took them is because, you know, they were big names. And I remember thinking, well, you're actually insulting me twice here because one, you're insulting my integrity as an editor yep. to, to actually like claim that I'm buying crappy stories just because the name is on them. And number two, you're, you're insulting my talent as an editor because I really love those stories. That's why I bought them, dude. So again, and it, it would just make me, and that's what, you know, I've never, I've won a bunch of world fantasy awards and all these other awards and I've never gone and accepted any. And I, again, I have no problem with people who love awards and would go every, you know, would spend money to go to every convention to accept it, or if they were nominated. And I just never did that because it never really mattered to me, you know, and, and people will say, well, it's in your bio. And I'll say, that's exactly what it's worth. It's in my bio. (laughs) And if I win one next year, it'll go on my website and it'll probably be added to my bio. And that's it. You know, I just, I don't care because after 30 years, I know there's been times when I've been nominated for something, uh, you know, like a best of cemetery dance where I'm like, well, you know what? Yeah, that probably was the best anthology that year because it took stories from a 10 year period. So how could it not be good? Um, but it got beat out by something else. And then there's years I've won for something. And I'm like, how the hell did that win? You know, we put that together in two weeks with six phone calls. And so it's just, uh, yeah, I, I, those things have never mattered to me. It's always just been about the, the personal vision and, and what I wanted to do. And that's, I, I mean, I, you guys have a, you guys, you know, the podcast has a personality. And, um, and thank you. It's a very positive um, it's, it's a person for me, it, it's very positive and it's very uplifting, um, but without being fluff. And to me, that's not easy to do. And I think it inspires a lot of people. Um, I think you get, you know, I remember the first time I came on, you were like, Hey, you're different than I thought you'd be just, you know, probably because you thought I was this old gray haired guy who was going to be <laughs> stiff, but it's like, you know, you, 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 you provide a, a comfortable, you know, knowledgeable environment. So you're going to get people who trust you and talk to you. And, and again, that, don't change that. Just keep doing what you're doing and, and outlast everybody else. And I don't mean that in a competitive sense. I've never meant that. I've always like, I, I remember lots of people who were competitive and I'm like, man, you know, 
we're talking about Cemetery Dance at the peak of the magazine's success, you know, like 30,000 copies out there or something. I'm like, so you're talking about a drop in the bucket. I'm like, guys, there's plenty for all of us. So I don't, I don't mean that, but it, that's just in a very black and white sense of guess what? I'm, I'm going to put in the hours and I know lots of other people won't. Um, and even if I make no money for 10 years, which I didn't in the beginning of Cemetery Dance, um, I'm still going to be there. You know, even if I have to work two other jobs to, to make it happen. So um, it's just, you know, it, and, and at the time I didn't have a mortgage and I didn't have kids. So I was in an enviable position in that regard. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it, it really does. You know, I try to teach my own boys that it's like, you know, there, there are some secrets that that you kind of spend your whole life looking for. This isn't one of them. You know, hard work is I learned that really early. Hard work does work, you know. Um, there are going to be times when you have successes and you kind of feel bad because you're like, well, I know so-and-so works their butt off and they haven't had that success. And I'm like, that's just part of life. I said, you're some, you're, you know, like with sports, same thing. You're going to find yourself on both ends of that at times, but, uh, but just do the work and be hard headed and stick around and, and good things will happen. It, it almost always does. Definitely appreciate that. Seriously though, like that. Thank you. Uh, Brent, I promise jump in after this. Thank you for that, man. Uh, that's we both admire what you do and you as a person so that uh means a lot and um yeah unless brennan wants to end the friendship which it can't happen at this point um i plan on doing too much dirt on me yeah (laughs) i we we are not stopping for we're not stopping for yeah i mean even you know even if life life throws you some stuff man when i when i had cancer and i was 30 just like I talked about in Boogeyman, you know, I didn't publish for 10 months um, because I was literally trying to stay alive. You know, I was doing chemo and I lost 50 pounds and blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was never far from my thoughts. And, and that was the worst thing about chemo. I remember telling people is once it, once I was so sick that I couldn't read because I couldn't focus on the page. And then, wow. you know, once I could read again, uh, I felt so much better and so much more like myself, even though I didn't have any hair on my head and all that. Um, but I was so... I remember David Silva from the horror show said he was shocked at, at how quickly I came back and how much I wanted to come back because he felt like a lot of times when a person has that life altering situation, it doesn't happen. And I just remember it was like, well, for me, it was just further proof of this is what I want to do. You know, I'm, I'm better now, so I'm going back to work. Um, but yeah, don't don't feel bad if, if a situation arises where you got to take a break, even if it's a mental health break or it's a, you know, Hey, I, I, you know, I got to work overtime at, at work because, you know, whatever, just, you know, you just, again, it's, it's never neat. You know, that's what I always tell people. It's, it's, it's rarely neat and pretty. So, but if you can kind of look up 10 years down the line and say, Hey, I'm still here. That's a good feeling. So. Yeah. Um, I did take the two months off for a mental break and because I had to reevaluate what was actually important and the podcast will remain because it's fun. I get to, like, think about it. I don't know if we would have talked like we wouldn't have ta- you and me and Brennan wouldn't have talked like this uh, without a podcast. And and that's not good or a bad thing. It's just um, well, it's a good thing. But uh, it has allowed us to understand uh, and connect uh, with authors like minded people. And we've gotten reception on the show itself in ways that is more than entertainment now. So um yeah, I just kind of kind of going back to we're doing it because this is fun for us and and we're very hungry to uh, write um, and 
just keep on learning from people that we can learn from. Brennan, I'm blabbering a lot. Why don't you take over, buddy? Um, I don't think I could hit every point on that uh, that on, on Rich's answer that I would want to without bringing us well over the two hour mark. So, I mean, I, I will say, uh, Patrick, you're never going to get beta notes from me that are, are congratulatory. So, <laughs> I mean, just get used to that. Good. Uh, and you know, pretty much everything you just said, Rich, it just, it, it exemplifies this like blue collar work ethic that, you know, uh, just bleeds into chasing the boogeyman. This just, this, this, this hardworking, likable, you know, affirmation that, you know, just, it, it makes the book work. Um, and being able Patrick to take just the, being able to take the bumps, you know, and this, again, yeah. I'm talking to my older son and I remember I had a day where I was just like, I was like, Billy, you're a lot like me. I'm like, you know, we're both kind of grinders. We don't usually do it the easiest way. We don't usually do it the prettiest way, but we do it. And I'm like, and, you know, and I was probably talking to an 18 year old Billy at the time, but I was just like, don't, I don't want you to ever undervalue that because the amount of people who actually do it, as opposed to think about it or talk about it, it is such a low percentage. And I'm just like, don't ever, I, cause he, I remember he was building something and he's like, I probably spent, you know, $300 when I should have spent a hundred. And I'm like, but guess what? You did it. I'm like, most <laughs> people wouldn't have even. And I said, you just described how I built my business. I probably spent a lot of 80 hour weeks in the beginning when it should have been a 40 hour week, but because of the way I did things, but guess what? I did it. And if I was trying, and, and he got this, it was like, the, you know, rarely do you get the 18 year old light bulb to go off. And he was, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, but think about it. If you had to do it perfectly to the directions, um, and you had to, you know, it, it, it had to be, uh, you know, perfection. I said, you wouldn't have done it or you would have given up. I said, but instead you did it your way, which ended up being the hard way. Um, spent a few extra bucks doing it. But at the end of the day, it was finished and you did it. And I just said, again, trust me, that is. And there was another time where we were doing a film and, and the production company it was raining. It was miserable and they wanted to put it off. And I was just like, you know, it's my money out here doing this and i'm like we can't put it off for you know till the weather's better because it's not gonna be better for a week and billy's gonna be back in college and we just gotta suck it up and go and do this and and i'm not that kind of a boss everybody at cd i'll tell you you know it, it takes a lot to get me mad once i'm mad i'm mad but uh <laughs> it takes a lot to get me there and and i wasn't angry but i was very you know it was one of those times where you know i, I was just like guess what i know i'm the boss and, and i'm gonna be the boss and I just remember it opened Billy's eyes a little bit too. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to power through and, and it's going to be ugly and sloppy and it even, it's going to be miserable, but when it's done, it's done. And again, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, that's what I feel like, you know, you guys feel the same thing. It's just like, you know what, <laughs> you guys have a secret that a lot of people don't have. And, and the cool thing about it is it's not even a secret. So it, it's just like, keep it in your pocket, share it with people who matter and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I was going to add on to the end was, you know, question for five minutes led to, you know, uh, a really great discussion. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we went there. This is shaping up to be the best episode of season three so far. Yeah. <laughs> one of one. Yeah. You, guys, you guys are rolling. And that's the All end right, of season so three. I, I, Adios. I want to take us to, to uh, Gwendy's final task. It is out February 15th. Patrick, do you have any idea when this episode airs? Yeah, next week, uh, which would be the 30. Oh, damn. I forgot. Monday is, is it... the 31st. Thank you. All right. You are welcome. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Gwen, Gwendy's final task is out February 15th. Uh, now, going back a little bit, and please correct me if I am misremembering, but 
book one, Gwendy's Button Box, right up there, I believe. Um, I think that was a story that Steve started and just couldn't get the hang of, and he brought you in on it. So to give us just the short version of how book one comes about. Uh, yeah, real short version is we were talking, we were emailing back and forth about uh, round robin projects and collaborations. And um, <clears throat> he mentioned he had the story even never, never was able to finish. And I said, you know, I'd love to read it sometime. Um, and I was saying, and I would just love to read it because I'm your friend. And it's one of the coolest things in the world that I get to read stuff early, like his new one, Fairy Tale. Um, I read it like four months ago in manuscript. And oh, you bastard. I know. I know. <laughs> that's one of the, that's is, it one great? Of the is it good? It's, it's yeah it's amazing it's, it's, oh, i can't wait it's what i've i've told people i'm like this is the kind of book that made me fall in love with reading i got chills when i saw your post you're the post yeah. the first sign i'm like i need this <laughs> well it made me want to go to the library and i and and i was like i i don't know that i felt that way about reading a book like okay I, i've read this i've experienced it now i want to go to the library and just like be surrounded by books instead of my office which is wall-to-wall books but it was it was a cool it was a neat experience and, different books man but that was my th- whole thing is i was just saying you know I, I know that i get that once in a while and i and i don't ask like fairy tale. i didn't even i knew nothing about this book i thought he, his next book was a holly gibney book because that's what i had read about in public i, I don't ask him um so that would that was a you know a nice surprise. So, but yeah, that that element of the friendship is there, which I'm very fortunate. And, you know, I'm very grateful for. Um, so yeah, I was just like I'd love to read it sometime, and it showed up the next day. And it, it, his email said it was very brief. It said do with it as you wish. And I thought about that, and I thought about it in the context of what we were talking about. And I emailed him back. I said, you want me to f- try to finish it? And he said, if if you want to, if you think you can, and then. So I said, all right, let me, you know, let me give it a look. And, and, uh, you know, that, that's how it happened. I mean, later that weekend, it was decided I'd take a crack at it. And, and uh, you know, I spent the weekend in terror because I, I didn't tell my wife, I didn't tell my sons, I didn't tell anybody because it just didn't feel real. And I was like, <laughs> I had to process it. And I remember Monday rolled around and I told her, or Sunday rather, and I told everybody. And then Monday I got to work and yeah, yeah. I never dreamt that in a million years. Um never thought of possible. So that's, that was button box. That's how that came about. So let me ask you a stupid question. Sure. Was it fun? It, you know what? Yeah, it was ridiculously fun. I remember I, I, and I've told this story a lot, so I'm sorry if you've heard it, but I, I had a yellow notepad and, and a pen and I started jotting down some, some general thoughts, which I don't usually do, but I felt like, okay, this is a big deal. I, I, I got to do this right. And I remember I was so nervous. My hand was shaking. And I just put the pen down and I was like, this is ridiculous. And I just opened my laptop and instead I just started writing. I, I literally read the last few pages of what he had sent me, um, which I had printed out. And I started writing and it was like, boom, I, you know, within like half an hour, I was in Castle Rock. I was writing, you know, my own story and was just, you know, flying along. And I think I wrote 10,000 words in the next two days. And again, I was like, oh, I started getting nervous, like, oh, I, and I was like, I can't go over this again and again with a fine tooth coma or I'll never send it. I just have to hit send and send it to him. So that's, yeah. I mean, it was so much fun. Um, And uh, you know, each book has just, you know, built on that. And this last one was the most fun I've ever had writing a book. Um, You know, it was a full length novel um, and we, we dealt in bigger chunks and it was, you know, Whereas the first one was a, a novella, it was like 25,000 words. And the second one I was on my own, 
And with, but with this one, we were, you know, we were trading larger chunks of text and really not telling each other where we were going. Um, and it just felt like this great, you know, it, it felt like, okay, I've died and gone to heaven. And, and I, you know, the first thing I have to do is this writing exercise where I'm trading sections of a Castle Rock dairy main story with, you know, with my literary hero. Um, so yeah, fun from start to, to finish. And, and, you know, I just did a zoom with Steve two days ago for Simon and Schuster sitting right here. And that's what I told him. I was like, Steve, I, I, you know, I, I, when we started this book, I was terrified because of where you set part of the book, because I'm like, I knew nothing about this and I had to learn. And I'm like, but yeah, ended up being the most fun I've ever had. That's uh, I, I really dig the idea that you've got three books in the trilogy and not a one of them was kind of written in the same manner. Um, I, I think that's really interesting. Now, one thing that struck me is in the introduction to Magic Feather, mm-hmm. uh, Steve wrote something along the lines of nobody writes small town like like you. Um, so I, I wonder, you know, obviously you're intimately familiar with his work. How was writing in places like Castle Rock and and Derry? You know, how much freedom did you feel versus having to like uh, be beholden to like research and rereading? Um, you know what, I, I I felt a responsibility to getting it right because yeah. you know it's 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 his universe. Um, but uh, I mean, a crazy story about the second book is I always thought he was going to come back and write the second book with me. You know, and, and I think we might have talked about this, but I, I just, you know, when he said, that's a great idea, you need to do this. I'm going to be busy with Holly Gibney. It was, you know, he's writing one of those books three years, two years ago or whatever. Um, I took that as, you know, hey, Rich, you write the first draft and I'll come and rewrite and uh, add stuff on and make you look really great. And that was never his intention. He told me later, he's like, well, you, you know, no, you wrote this book. It's your idea. It's great. Uh, you know, his words. He's like, I'll edit it if you want, but it's your book. Um I, I never would have probably uh, delved so deeply into Castle Rock's, you know, the mythology of the town. I, you know, I, I essentially brought the town back. I mean, Castle Rock was destroyed at the end of Needful Things, um, which happened after the first button box book. So there had been no Castle Rock, you know, after Needful Things until I brought it back in that book, which I, I wouldn't have had the balls to do that if I didn't think Stephen King was going to write it with me. Um, I brought the sheriff, you know, I mean, I mean, I made the deputy the sheriff and I put a statue that talked about the the reconstruction of the town and all that. So that's that was pretty heady stuff to do unless you kind of thought the the big guy was there along for the ride with you. So that's whenever people are like, oh, Rich, are you trying to pull my leg? I'm like, no, I never would have done all that. So but, yeah, it's a blast. And I, I feel responsibility to get it right. And that's where Bev Vincent comes in because he knows Steve's world even better than Steve does. So. He, he always read it and corrected, you know, my mistakes, but yeah. Um, but like in the third book, I'm the one who took us to Derry, you know, I got my section to, you know, he sent me that, you know, next section and it's just, that's where the story wanted to go. So I kind of, you know, next, you know, we're in Derry, you know, Pennywise is mentioned and I'm like crapping my pants over here. And then I have to send it to Steve and I'm holding my breath. Cause I don't know what he's going to think. Um, but he loved it and he made all the dairy stuff even better. So yeah, that, that was the, the fun thing about it is it's just, we had complete freedom and we stated that up front and complete trust and yeah, uh, you know, dream come true stuff, obviously. Yeah. I would imagine that would tow a nice neat line between being 
just absolutely breathtakingly fun and intimidating as hell. But that's, that sounds great. You know, same time, and, like roller coaster. Right? Yeah. It's like, this is exhilarating and wonderful. And I may die, um, <laughs> you know, and he did, he told me in the beginning of final task, he's like, rich stretch. Cause I remember I asked a couple questions and he answered me with non-answers. And at some point I could see him smiling over email and I get an email. He says, Rich, strap in. I don't know where we're going. I never do. Let's just go. And I was like, okay. So it felt very, and I sent him a very corny and I mentioned this in the zoom. I sent him a very corny text one day when we were probably 200 pages into the manuscript. And I was like, you know, Steve, this is in my mind, this is what a collaboration should always be. And I'm like, you know, we're not writing each other into corners, but there's complete freedom, complete trust. I said, and it feels almost like this challenge to each other without purposely trying to get each other in a corner where it's just, okay, I just gave you my best for 40 or 50 pages. Now it's your turn. Where are you going to take us? And that's what it felt like. And and in and, and many, and you know, I, I, I'm not, a, I, I'm not enough of a writer to hold the guy's jock strap. But at the same time, while we were writing that book, I felt like I, you know, I was matching him. And that's a cool feeling to have when, you know, you know, the reality of it is, is, is that's not true. But uh, by the time we were finished with the book and we had blended everything and I had rewritten him, which is a ridiculous concept <laughs> true, and he had rewritten me and we added stuff. And he said this in the zoom, you know, he's like, I look back and I don't know who wrote entire sections. And I'm like, I don't either. And that's ridiculous, you know? So yeah. Yeah. You talk about fun this is the time of my life. That's, that's awesome to hear. And make, you know, that that's going to make people want to read it all the more is just the fact that I, I love when I pick up a book and I can tell that the author, in this case, authors just had a, the time of their list, you know, writing it, putting it together and planning it and all that in as much, you know, planning, like you said, as actually went on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think um, people will see that. I think people will see that we had a lot of fun. Now, what, what I loved about, you know, Magic Feather is, you know, we we met this character in Button Box and, you know, you can't help but fall in love with her. It's just the way the way that thing is written. It's just it reads like a fairy tale and you right. just become attached to this character and checking in on her when she's in D.C. Uh, it just feels right. I can't think of a better word for it. So, I mean, are you happy with where you left Gwendy? revisiting her and where you're oh, bringing yeah. her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm going to keep referring back to this zoom, but only because it, it just happened and, and it was really extensive and fun to do. And, and, and you know what, again, because Steve and I, we spend more time talking about our dogs and, and, you know, movies than we do about our own work and, and what we're doing. So even with Gwendy, when we were done, we didn't talk about it too much, but it was, so it was nice to hear him say, he's like, you know, this is the strongest book of the three. And, it's because, you know, we had the time to put into it and we really kind of uh, were both operating at, 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 you know, optimal speed. And yeah, I mean, we're really happy with the way it ended. And, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of possibilities. And, you know, everyone talks about they see the Dark Tower in the background on the, uh, on the cover, on the two covers. And it's like, so there's, yeah, there's obviously some conditions, but they're not. You know, there's just somebody finished it yesterday, um, the, the arc and uh, and sent me a message on Facebook. And, they, you know, they just talked about how how many threads run through it that connect to other Stephen King stories and worlds. And I'm just like that. Again, you talk about the privilege of, of being able to be involved in that. So it, it is my favorite book of all time. It kind of the book it is responsible for me doing this. You know, I've told that story a lot and it kind of saved me at a time I needed saving. And 
re-inspired me to, to get in this world. And, you know, six months later, I started Cemetery Dance. Um, so again, if you would have told that guy, you know, that guess, you know, one day you're going to be writing about the sidewalks of dairy and the canal and, and a clown with silver eyes. And, you know, I, I would have laughed and, 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 you know, called you an idiot. So the fact that that happened is again, I'm going to use the word it's ridiculous and I'm grateful for it. And I still, you know, I've got a couple copies of the advanced books up in my office in, in my bedroom. And still, every time I walk by it, I kind of have to touch it to make sure it's real. <laughs> Um, true story. So yeah, I'm, I'm still the, I'm still that kid who, uh, you know, people are like, well, this book's going to be on the New York times bestseller list. And I'm like, you know what? I, I hope it is, but I don't even care because, <laughs> you know, because I can touch it and it's real. And my name is right there next to Steve's and that, you know, I have the, the four months of memories of writing that book together with them, you know, with me always. So yeah, just again, I can't even pretend to be cool about it, obviously. So <laughs> I love that it is longer than the first two, man, because the first two, as Brennan stated, are, are very different, but they're a hell of a lot of fun. Um, Thank you. Yeah, man. So we're going to start winding down here. Uh, I wanted to ask, I'll start with you, Rich. What are you currently reading? Uh, you know what? What is the name of it? The uh, I think it's like the Hollows or something like that. It's uh, Mark Edwards' book. No, um, who who I was not familiar with, but I read this jacket copy and I'm like, I need a copy of this book. And he goes to this, <laughs> he, he goes to you guys got to look it up. I'm pretty sure it's called the Hollows. He goes to this camp in uh, in Maine with his 14 year old daughter. That bad shit happened here, and it, he's kind of revisiting. Um, you know, trying to trying to write a new story uh he's not he's a journalist so he's looking for a new story and he finds it there it's kind of a true crime aspect type of a thing and i'm, I'm only about 40 pages in but it's really good Mark so, yeah the hollows the hollows yeah that's it yep the three and then million. i'm gonna read demon theory demon theory by an old one from stephen graham jones that i had mm -hmm. never read before um but i was going through a box of books and i found a hardcover so i'm like I, I need to read this i just found uh his second book at a uh, good the goodwill local to me and oh, cool. it's all the beautiful sinners. I, I didn't even know. I, I wasn't familiar with his earlier stuff, but it looks great. You've Not been around for a while, too. Yeah, that came out in 2003. Yeah. So, Brandon, I'm, I'm going to jump in. Um, speaking of Don, we're getting Don Winslow's City on Fire. And uh, as a <laughs> as a mass hole that grew up, whether, you, whether I liked it or not, I did. Uh, Hearing stories about Whitey Bulger and the Italian mob and the uh, Irish mob, it, it's just, it's full of that world that I am very intrigued by. Um, yeah, and Don's brilliant. Don, Don doesn't have those happy accidents that I have where it's like, hey, the idiot savant got lucky. Don's just a smart dude who uh, is crazy talented and has been doing it for so long. So it's like everything in those books that you just talked about came right out of his brain, right through his hands into the computer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was watching this interview with him. On, I forget what the news station was last year. And he said that he puts 16-hour uh, work days in to write. <laughs> I mean, man, I don't know about you before I had a kid, obviously, because <laughs> it's not a thing when he's uh, one or two or whatever. Um, just I don't know if you guys heard it, but just about five minutes ago, I heard that's why whenever I took that off, I heard him going, Rah, dad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but 
I would write up to eight hours sometimes, and I wouldn't get more than a few thousand words. So, it, which is weird because the days that I focus two to three hours, I can get close to it. But um, sixteen hours, my my brain would be mush. Yeah, the last eight hours would not be productive for me. So, <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't happen. I can I can do like the 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 dirty work of like stuffing envelopes and all that kind of stuff for 20 hours straight. But yeah, if I'm trying to be creative and semi-intelligent now, I'm going to run out probably after seven or eight. I'm uh, bouncing around with three other ebook, audio book and a hard copy book. Um, The hard copy is a collection of Peter Straub's poetry from uh, 1970-75, I believe. It's a limited edition it's called Leeson Park and Bell Size Square. Came out in the 80s. Uh, I forget the publisher, but um, he's he's a poetic writer. And I, I just I wanted to read his poetry. And it's as smart as you would think it is. I was gonna say Peter's Peter's the smartest guy of every room and every room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's a he's a different cat. It's yeah. good poetry, but I know that I'm not smart enough to get it. <laughs> Yeah, you're just trying to feel try <laughs> absorb the words and imagery. I know I hear you. I'm the same way. It's like, yeah, I mean, even some of Peter's prose can be that way. You know, it's just I, like, whoa. Yeah, I appreciate it. Like even with Coco, that's that became one of my favorite books as soon as I read it. I'm like, I got to read this five more times to kind of like grasp everything. But um, believe it or not, I've never read or listened to 1984 by George Orwell. Mm. So. I mean, it's it's all right there. It's uh, terrifying how uh, similar aspects are to technology nowadays. And uh, yeah. <laughs> the last book is Burner by Robert Ford, about 60 percent in that. For those that do not know Robert Ford, he uh, he's a phenomenal writer. And this one, um, I will not spoil it, but it goes from. This is a cool story. And then once it hits this one part, and I talked to him about this a day or two ago, he just, I could read it as you said you did with Steve, his smile and laughing through text where (laughs) it's like, all right, we've been driving nice and steady. Now let's hit the highway. We're going a hundred miles per hour and (laughs) it's going to get faster every damn page. Time to turn. Uh, A little bumpy. (laughs) Yeah. Brennan, your turn, buddy. Uh, so uh, I just finished this. I finished this last week, but since we've been off, I definitely want to take a minute to talk about it. Uh, Sundial by Katrina Ward. Uh, it comes out in March. And, um, you know, obviously she got a lot of attention for The Last House on Needless Street last year. And, and I love that book. It was it was really great. It was it, it was very deserving of that praise. I like this one better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's different. It's very different. But it also has you just you're you're unsettled the whole time you just know that there's more story than you're getting and it feels like she just absolutely revels in just like dishing it out in these small spoonfuls uh until the last like 30 pages where the whole picture becomes clear and you know your mind just turns into a mushroom cloud um she's just she's just very very good at what she does um and I agree. maybe I'm wrong, but I can imagine that, uh, you know, a book like this is uh, is written the way I would write, you know, a book and, you know, just completely by the seat of my pants. This has to be meticulously plotted on note cards and all that shit. 
Um, <laughs> it's impressive, though. Uh, the other one I'm about to start, and I know Patrick loved this book, is yes. by <laughs> Gretchen Felker Martin. And I just got that in the mail today. I'm going to dive into it uh, over the weekend. Uh, and I just hear this thing is a game changer that it's, you know, it's it's fucking brutal. Uh, it's intense. And it's just, you know, uh, it's written with balls. King <laughs> uh, just tweeted about that, didn't he, Brian? Yeah, I think he yeah, did. Yeah, I read that because I put that on that put it on radar for me. It's um, it's written by a transgender woman, and I bring that up because it focuses on uh, to the way I translated it was basic human rights with a focus, a lens that focuses on a trans uh, transphobia. Um, it's a really good book. I I think that it's a fever dream of twenty eight days later meets uh current issues on transphobia if it were to get as bad as it possibly can get it's a good book um yeah yeah i'm gonna get that the one i just the one i'm gonna start that just came out and i can't remember the name of it it just came out tuesday along with chris golden's book it's like the devil house or something like that oh that looks like darnielle or something like that yeah 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 Yeah. i have a copy of that comment so that's probably next up for me I know nothing about that book, but the cover looks like it is from the seventies and I'm sure that's by design, but it, that, that would make me want to buy it. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much why I did buy it. Sprenny and I, uh, with Unbearing the Dead with Ken McKinley, we're diving in. We just finished, uh, um, The Exorcist that comes up February 1st. Um, the both, we talked about both the book and the film, uh, before that Rosemary's Baby, uh, we did Burn Offerings and, and I love Ken's Ken's kind of like leaning the charge on this, but I, I love it because um, if you know what comes before, and this might be obvious, but if you're a good student, uh, you're probably going to be a good teacher. And I, I apply that to writing because um, I see a lot of talk about new books, which is amazing. But let's take a moment to start to look at the older books that came before us. Like, why is The Exorcist? which, by the way, the film doesn't even come close to the book, in my opinion, but why is that book so influential still today? Rosemary's Baby and so forth, you know? Um, Burnt Offerings, I didn't know until Ken was telling us, was uh, was the inspiration for The Shining. Um, and it connected ghost stories in the Victorian era, that type, to Stephen King and what right. inspired. I never knew that, and I read Burnt Offerings, watched a movie, and I get it. Um it's a crazy ass movie too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The pool scene, uh, especially as a father, just that hit. Even it, it holds up. The movie holds yeah. up, but the pool scene alone is just, uh, oof. Yeah, tough, no, tough to you. watch. So, uh, listeners, or maybe you're new to the show, we also have a website. It's called deadheadspace.com. We have reviews, articles by some guests as well. Uh, We also have a store. Um, You can get my ugly mug. If you don't know what I look like because you're listening to the show, that's fine. Go to deadheadspace.com. But you can get that mug on a coffee mug or a T-shirt. And uh, next episode, they'll air February 7th. That's next Monday. It'll be with Ross Jeffrey. He is a fellow podcaster. He is a, uh, also an author, and he is a lot of things that we're going to find out about. A very friendly guy amongst them. But this has been a great time, Rich. I uh, just want to ask you if – sorry, I mean to cut you off. 
No, I just said I enjoyed it. I appreciate you guys asking me back. Oh, hell, hell yeah. That's a, that, that, when we were talking about who do we want to try to get for the first guest of season three, because, I mean, at least for us, we try to make it like, a, I guess, an event, if you will. Like, it's it's someone that we're excited to have on. Not that every guest isn't awesome, but, um, yeah. Dig that hole, Patrick. Dig that hole. I'm going to keep, <laughs> keep digging holes, baby. But we want to get you on. watching. So, Rich, I just wanted to ask so I can uh, – so I can divert the attention away from my uh, hole. Uh, if you have any final thoughts. Nah, I've, I've, I've blabbed enough for one night. I, uh, <laughs> I just appreciate it. Next time, next time I come on, I'm going to drag my son on here. So you get some good stories that, uh, that I wouldn't tell. He, he, uh, he did a podcast like, I don't know, probably a week and a half ago. And I walked in on him when he was doing it and he was talking about me and I was just stopped. And I was like, son of a bitch, you better just stop. <laughs> I would love, We'd to love have that. Actually. On. We'd yeah. love that. Yeah. We would have fun together. So well, if yeah, you guys anytime. Want, maybe we can get you on later this year. That'd be cool. Yeah. Whenever you want, then we'll have some fun, but yeah. My, thanks for asking me back. Like I said, I enjoyed it. And um, yeah, an hour and a half doesn't feel like an hour and a half with you guys. So thanks, um, anything I can do to Appreciate help you, that, just let me know. That would be great. Yeah. Um, Brennan, final thoughts, sir. Yeah. I mean, as always, we are deeply appreciative of your time. You know, we know you got writing to do. Uh, you probably have about 500,000 book plates to sign until your <laughs> fucking wrist falls off. Um, Hopefully I'm, I'm amazed finished. you can. <laughs> Hopefully I'm this book. We'll Man- see. <laughs> manufactured arthritis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, you're a busy dude. And the fact that you can uh, carve out an hour and a half for us, like we deeply appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thanks again. I echo Brennan. Um, Rich, it's seriously an honor. I know you don't see yourself in the same lens. Few people do in life. See see yourself in the same lens as a lot of people do. But you cannot argue the fact that Cemetery Dance is one of the world's biggest. Uh, I don't even know if it's indie, but publishers. They made a huge mark, and you're also in the stand. You know the stand canon now, so that's pretty damn cool. But you've also done a lot as a writer. And the most important thing is you have grant, uh, allowed your kids to remember. Uh, you've allowed your kids to be free and you've allowed your child to want to be like dad. I would assume I'm making bold assumptions right now, but he's a filmmaker and a writer and that don't happen by accident. So uh, yeah. you did the most important job in the world and that was be a good father seriously man like best I follow, job you can, yeah best job you can have man i follow you you on social media and, and you see him enough to know you love that you love that both those boys um so i'm a, we're a fan of you for all those reasons and more listeners you gotta check out chase and boogie man also check out Gwendy's final test it's with stephen king god damn if there's not a reason to read that book i don't know if stephen king can't do it for you i don't know it will but uh <laughs> You make choices in podcasts, folks. Thank you for picking us.